part of what we're looking at in the story of Abram or Abraham and Sarah is a couple learning to grow by faith. And marriages need to learn to depend on faith as well. It's not just a solo journey that you go through. We should probably, at this point, put Abraham and Sarah together. And we've seen in this married couple that sometimes what happens is one, one person's faith is stronger than another's. One person blows it, and the other person seems to be solid, and then it flips around. And in this particular chapter, it'll flip around again. Now, you may not be married tonight, but that doesn't matter because we're doing faith together as a church as well. We're learning to encourage one another's faith, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. In fact, the book of Hebrews says one of the main reasons that we gather together is to encourage one another's faith. And I hope you see your participation as just that, that it's not just to come and listen. It's not just to come and have your individual faith challenged and stretched, although it is that. It is to be a tool in the hand of the master to be an encouragement to other people's faith. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come before you right now and look at Genesis 18 and this rich section, uh, we want to pray, Lord, that you would stretch our faith. That can even be a dangerous prayer, Lord, we know, but we know that you are uh, faithful, that what you do, you do for our good and for your glory. And tonight, Lord, as we come before your word, there are so many areas of our lives that need stretching and new eyes and new faith. And I pray that you would breathe fresh faith into us tonight, into your people. Bless our time together. Point out to us wonderful things from your word, wonderful things about you and who you are. Take us on that faith journey, Lord, so that we can trust you more. We pray that in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Well, as you go along in the journey of Christianity and life in general, you're going to find that faith is the, probably the singular most important thing in your life. But your faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. If you have faith in the wrong thing, your faith is futile. It's meaningless. I did a memorial service for my aunt this week. My aunt passed away in her 80s. And I, I have a lot of great childhood memories of those days. And I was talking to one of the workers at the, uh, the uh, cemetery afterwards, and he told me that as the years have gone by, he's heard the perspective of many different faiths at the cemetery because he helps families walk through this. And I understood what he was saying, but I had been talking about the good shepherd, and I had been talking about Jesus Christ. And I said, I understand that you hear from a, a lot of different isms and religions, but I'm talking about the good shepherd. I'm talking about Jesus Christ getting you to the other side. And I was trying to make an, a point to the man and trying to still be gracious to him that Jesus claimed to be the singular way to God. He's the singular way to end up at the right destination. And your faith will, uh, you know, it will determine a lot of things in your life. Have you ever, maybe you've met somebody, maybe you're that person tonight that kind of wallows in unbelief. I've, I've known some people over the years, and it seems like every time I see them, whether I see them every five years or 10 years, they stay stuck. Unbelief will keep you stuck. Now, I don't believe that faith in God is some leap into a dark chasm where you check your brain at the door and you just say, whatever, I just have to believe. I have to believe. Faith is not like pixie dust. 
Faith is not, you know, I, I believe I can fly, that kind of thing. If I just imagine it hard enough, I believe it. No, faith is object-oriented. Faith, your faith, is in the God of the Bible. And the question is, do you believe that the God of the Bible is worth trusting? Do you believe he's worth trusting? Do you believe that anything is too difficult for him? In fact, I would say this to you, and I think we downplay the power of faith a lot of times, and I'm not talking about power in our own faith, but, but the power of our faith in God. I think we downplay that. And in fact, the Bible says that unbelief is no less than sin. In fact, the sin of unbelief is what will get all people one day condemned. If you won't believe then you are going to be stuck and you're going to end up under the judgment of God if you won't put your faith in Jesus Christ because what you're saying when you say I don't believe is you're saying that God is a liar. Think about it. God's given us 66 books. He entered into time and space in the person of Jesus Christ in the very history in which we are embedded. And when we say I won't believe you, I won't take you at your word, what are we saying? I don't believe you're trustworthy. I don't believe you're believable. I mean, there are some people in our world that I would say, be careful. <laughs> you know, don't just jump out there and trust everybody. But the question that circles back around for all of us as believers is, will we trust in God? This is what, you know, much of our lives is really about. Now, chapter 18 opens with these words. Now, the Lord, that is Yahweh, that means the existing one, Genesis 18, verse 1, appeared to him, that's to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Now, chapter 18 opens up with this appearance of the Lord, and chapter 17 was an incredible chapter. It opened up with these words. Go back and look with me. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, that's God Almighty, Walk before me and, notice, be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. And God changed his name to Abraham, from Abram to Abraham, from Sarai to Sarah, and God is making these promises. And God even told Abraham in this chapter, this time next year, your wife, who I know is pretty old, is going to have a son. And his name will be Laughter, Isaac or Isaac. This is the promise that God made. Did Abraham share that promise with Sarai, now Sarah? Uh, it would appear that he did, but maybe she, you know, she wasn't around for the, the direct interaction but now the Lord appears again to Abraham, and it's not too far removed from the previous chapter. Why did God appear again? You look at verse 10, chapter 18. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. I point out verse 10 just to let you know that this second appearance from 17 to 18 is probably within a few weeks of the appearance of chapter 17. And part of what God said in 17 was, Abraham, there's going to be a sign between me and you, and the sign will be, you remember? Some of us walked out with a pain look on our face last week because it was all about circumcision. That's right. And 
Abraham obeyed God and he took all the males of the household, even those who were servants in the house and circumcised them all. And so the whole household obeyed God and that's how chapter 17 pretty much ended. And now the Lord appeared again to Abraham uh, and notice it says, by the oaks of Mamre, that's where Abraham had made an altar earlier. If you look at Genesis 13, um, look at verse 18, go back a few Pages, Genesis 13, verse 18 says, Then Abraham, or Abram, moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. That's the location. And there, what did he do? He built an altar to the Lord. And the Lord is going to appear now by these oaks of Mamre, where Abraham lives, but also where he made an altar. Now, God can appear to us anywhere. He can speak to us anywhere, but have you noticed that places that are consecrated, like churches and special uh, uh, areas of life, look, you don't have to go into a church and pray. You can pray in your car. Just keep your eyes open. You guys all know that, right? You can pray anywhere, but it seems like when you consecrate a spot unto God, it seems like sometimes he'll visit you right there. And I told you in an earlier study that we have to, when our faith is waning or we're, you know, we've been sliding away from God, we've got to get back to those places where we can hear from the Lord. Sometimes that simply means turning down the volume in your life. For some people, that means returning to church. For some people, that means seriously returning to their Bible. Are you in one of those categories tonight? Well, that's what Abraham did. He returned to a place where an altar was set up in his life, and God visited him there later on. And notice in Genesis 18.1, if you go back there, it was the Lord, this is not Adonai here, 18.1, this is Yahweh, and it means he is the existing one. And he appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he's sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. The workers who worked in the agrarian age would work in the early morning hours. In the heat of the day, sometimes they would take a nap. And since Abraham's a pretty old dude right now, he's like 99 years old, he was probably napping, I would imagine, by the tent door. How many of you enjoy a good nap in the middle of the day? All right. When you're a little kid, it's the last thing you want to do. When you get older, it's the only thing you want to do. But anyway, that's another story. And so the Lord appears to Abraham. Now, you're going to note here that the Lord is going to appear in human form. He's going to appear with two others. And the question is, when the, the Lord appears, when the Bible says something like this, what's going on? Because this is way before the Lord took on human form in the incarnation. This is way before he was born on that Bethlehem night. So what's going on here? There's a key verse I want to point out to you. It's found in John 1. If you go there, John chapter 1. John 1 is a great chapter to study the deity of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word, 114, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Notice, John 1.14, the glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, those verses are well known, but skip down to verse 18, and this is one that you should put in this same category. No man has seen God at any time. John 1.18, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has, what your Bible say? Explained him, that word could be rendered, has made him known. Jesus, John 1.18, go back to Genesis, is the explanation of God. He is God 
in a bod, if you like rhymes. In fact, in Exodus 3, when uh, the angel of the Lord, it says, uh, is in the bush, the angel of the Lord, and I've been telling you that scholars believe the angel of the Lord is a pre-Bethlehem appearance of Jesus, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord is the one that speaks to Moses from the burning bush. And Moses goes up to see the great sight, and there's a bush burning, and yet it's not what? Consumed. And the bush becomes a type of Israel. They are going through the fires of affliction. They are burning under the Egyptian taskmasters, yet they are what? Not consumed. It's because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. And so Moses turns to see this great sight. And one of the first things that the voice of the burning bush tells Moses is take off your sandals for you are on holy ground. And the Bible says that Moses was afraid to even look upon God. The angel of the Lord and God are the same in this particular section. What's my point? My point is that every time there is an appearance of the Lord in the Old Testament, it seems to be that what we have is a Christophany. That is, we have an appearance of the second person of the Holy Trinity in the Old Testament. And there are times when he takes on a form of humanity. Example, Joshua is getting ready to fight in Joshua chapter 5. And the Lord appears as a warrior. And Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemies? And he identifies himself as the commander of the armies of the Lord. And he says, basically, you know what? I'm not on your side. I'm the commander of the army. And I have now come. And Joshua, what does he do? Takes off his sandals, for he is on holy ground. The Lord appeared to at key moments in time in the Old Testament. And he, he appeared in the burning bush in Exodus 3. He appeared as a warrior in Joshua 5. Moses needed to know that the people of Israel were burning under the affliction of the taskmasters, but yet not consumed. They would not be consumed. Joshua needed to know that the Lord was a warrior and he was on his side. So he appeared as a warrior. And in Genesis 18, God appears as a traveler. And one writer said that God will appear sometimes in different ways according to the need of the moment and, in a, and according to the encouragement that a believer needs. And so in these individual cases, when God appears, it's not always the same. He's a warrior. He's a traveler. He's in the bush that burns and yet is not consumed. And there's a sub-message being sent to the people of God. And here's the message. Take courage the existing one will be what you need him to be for you. Do you believe that? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? That's the question that is, continues to emerge in the Bible and in our own hearts. The question, will we take God at his word? And so the Lord appears, look at Genesis 18, verse 2. And when he, Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked... Behold, three men were standing opposite him, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. Now, remember, this dude's 99, and he's running. I can barely run at 50. <laughs> Not only did he run, he bowed down. Here's the word shaka in Hebrew. This is the usual Hebrew word for worship. He ran, and he bowed himself uh, to the earth. He bowed down before these three men 
I lifted my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, I wonder, and maybe you're wondering this too, why the back-to-back appearances so close together? Do you think that because maybe what was going on is that in this tent there remained some unbelief? Maybe there was some uh, you know, intense fellowship, as some of us like to put it, in the marriage going on. You're going to have a son. How is that going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> but that's what he said. Are you going to believe about it now? Right? You're sleeping. Where do you sleep if, you, if you're in a tent? Sleep the camel's house? I don't know. Anyway, not the dog house, but... I, I would just imagine that maybe what was going on is prayer was going up from Abraham and from Sarah, kind of like this. Lord, have you ever been here before? I don't understand this. I don't get this. I don't understand the mechanics of it. I don't know how you're going to do this. Please, send us, how many of you pray this way? Confirmation. (laughs) Send me some assurance that Indeed, this is what I'm supposed to do. I've had some moments in my own pastoral uh, career where I felt like I prayed about something and then the Lord gave it to me and then I was like, Lord, I don't think that's you. (laughs) I had chili last night. I don't know. I'm going to double check. I'm going to fleece this, right? Are you sure that's what you want me to say? (laughs) Right? And there's been times when the Lord just kind of, and then then I'm not even looking for assurance. I say I want it, but... I want assurance for a way out. Can I get a witness? So if the Lord says something that's challenging or stretching to me, then my my prayer is, Lord, would you confirm this as a negative? (laughs) That's really what I'm looking for here. So are we truly praying about it, or are we just kind of trying to direct God? I think in the 10, I think we could read between the lines a little bit here based upon the quick back-to-back appearances of the Lord and, and see that maybe Abraham or maybe Sarah or maybe both of them needed a little bit more. Abraham has a sense when he sees these three visitors, they just kind of appear. It doesn't say they rode in. It doesn't say they walked up. He just, and maybe he was napping, maybe he wasn't, but he just lifted his eyes and there they were, three of them. Some scholars have said maybe they represent the Trinity, but I think it's clear from other scriptures that it's the Lord and two angels. We'll see that in Genesis 19. And so um, here they appear. There's three of them, and Abraham is running around. Uh, There's a sense of urgency. He runs up to them. He bows down to the earth, and he bows before, um, in this case, we're going to see the Lord of the universe Hebrews 13, 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels unaware. Hebrews 13, 2. Do you know that most scholars of the Bible believe that Hebrews 13, 2 was primarily fulfilled in Genesis 18, what we're reading right now? And the, the idea is that the one that entertained angels unaware, or at least unaware for a time, was none other than Abraham. And so you and I should be hospitable too. Hospitality is where we get the idea of a hospital. Hospitality can mean to open up your home, but more than that, it means to open up your heart. 
Would you consider yourself a hospitable person? Do you let people into your life to take a look at your Savior and your Lord? Hospitality is not just about hosting a barbecue. It can be that. And in fact, Hebrews 13.2 says, do not neglect to entertain strangers. I barely entertain people I like, <laughs> let alone strangers. What do you mean? It's a dangerous world, my mother would tell me. She tells me all the time. Be careful, Michael. Be careful in your daily, weekly activities. This is my mother, Italian mother. But it's how I know she loves me. She's always, how many of you parents, be careful has become your main two words now to your children? Just a few of you? Oh, okay. Anyway. And so don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Uh, in fact, notice verse 3, Genesis 18. He said, my Lord, this is Adonai. It means sovereign controller. Your Lord, Adon in the Hebrew picture language means the first judge, the one who is strong, sovereign, master of your life. In other words, you run everything by him first. If you're going to call someone Lord, you're going to say you're my Lord, then you run everything by him first. That's the essence of Lord. The word Lord means what? Master. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And Jesus even said that if you're going to be my friends, then do what I say in John chapter 15. And Abraham was known as a friend of God. Some have entertained angels unaware. And he said, my Lord, Adonai, sovereign controller, if now I have found favor in your sight, notice the words of Abraham, please do not pass your servant by. You are my Lord. Look at verse 3. I am your servant. I don't know if Abraham really knows who this is yet, but I think he senses that this is a special visitor or visitors. I think he senses that this is a divine appointment. In fact, maybe this is what he's been praying about. And now when it happens and he sees these three visitors, he says, oh, Lord, do not pass me by. You know, when Jesus was walking on the sea, in the later story we're going to see in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, it says he intended to pass them by. One of these interesting scriptures, he was walking on the water. It's like the idea there is that he wanted them to call out in faith to the Lord. And I hope it's in your heart to say, Lord, don't pass me by. I don't want one opportunity to get to know you better, better pass me by. I don't want one opportunity to, to grow in my relationship with you to pass me by. Oh, Lord, please, look at the end of verse 3, don't pass your servant by. Here I am, Lord, Isaiah says, what? Send me. I hope that's in your prayer. I hope that's what you believe. Abraham opened the door of his tent and the door of his heart to the Lord. If you want your faith to be stretched, and that's a lot what this journey with Abraham and Sarah is about, then you've got to open your heart regularly to the things of God. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by, can I hear it? The word of God. So you're here tonight. You had many options, many other things that you could have done tonight, but you know that your faith is built by what? The word of God. 
The more of the word you get into you, the more your faith grows. And that's the beauty of what it means to walk with the Lord. And so Abraham said, don't pass me by, Lord. I want to know you. In fact, Abraham in three places in the Bible, write it down, James 2.23, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, and Isaiah 41.8, he is called the friend of God. Why is Abraham called God's friend? What does the term friend mean to you? Do you have close friends? Do you have someone who knows you well enough where your heart is opened up to them? Do you have someone that you could go to? You may say, I don't feel like I have a friend in the world. Oh, but what a friend you have in Jesus. There's no other friend like him. There's no other friend that says, call me with all of your problems. I want to hear them 24-7. I have some good friends, but I know if I did that too much with those friends, <laughs> they might not want me to call as often. I have some great friends in my life, but there's no other friend that we have like Jesus. There's a friend that sticks closer to, to us than a brother. That's Proverbs 18, 18:24. There's an old song, you might remember it, some of you, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. Remember that song? There's nothing that compares to knowing him. What made Abraham a friend of God? I think that he spent time with God. How can you call somebody your friend if you don't spend any time with them? A lot of us have what we might call surface friendships. I think a lot of guys are famous for this. We have surface friendships. I heard the story, a comedian telling the story of a guy who tells his wife he wants to play golf with a friend of his, and the wife is aware that his friend and the, the spouse are having some marital problems. So she says, okay, okay honey, go ahead and, and go golfing with Joe because that'll be wonderful if you spend some time with him. I know that they're going through some tough times, and so he goes out, plays golf for four or five hours, comes home, and the wife says, well, how is Joe and so-and-so doing? And, and the husband goes, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You just spent four to five hours with him. What did you talk about? Golf. The extent of our conversation in golf is pretty much this. Nice ball. <laughs> or if you're playing golf with our group, it's oh, oh. And then, then you pray that there's no crashing noises. <laughs> We had a funny moment on the golf course. I always throw Pastor John under the bus, but since he's not here, I'll tell you. We're, we're in a tournament, and we were on the tee box, and there were houses off to our right, and Pastor John was on the tee, and Pastor John's a pretty consistent golfer. but So he's on the tee, and he, hit, and he shanked a shot, and it hit a wrought iron fence by this house, and it went, and it, the ball came right back to Pastor John's feet. And it was, it was so awesome because right behind the wrought iron fence was a sliding glass window and the Lord had mercy on Pastor John because it would have cost a couple hundred dollars. The feet came right back, the ball came right back to the feet of Pastor John. And then he used another line that is famous in our golf game and it's called mulligan. <laughs> so anyway, you get to do do-overs in golf and even in life. Abraham was called a friend of God. Turn to Isaiah 41 for a second. So pass up the Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah 41. This is the one that 
uh, regarding his friendship with God is expounded upon Isaiah 41. Look at verse 8. Isaiah 41, 8 says these words. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, Isaiah 41, 8, descendant of Abraham, what's your Bible say? My friend. Is it possible for us to claim friendship with God? I think theologically some of us wrestle a little bit with this. Is this just too loose of a term? Is this too... uh, What does this really mean? He's a friend of God. You whom I have taken, Isaiah 41, 9, from the ends of the earth called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, 41, 10, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who, anger, who are angered at you will be ashamed or shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. Go to John 15 for a second. John 15, Jesus is giving the upper room discourse, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's getting ready to die on the cross the next day, trying to teach a lot of things to the apostles, open their ears to what their lives are to be about. John 15, look at verse 11. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, John 15, 12, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his what? For his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves or servants, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you that you love one another. Friends know friends well enough to know what they're up to. Go back to John or back to Genesis. We should not be blind to God's purposes and plans. Obedience should define our lives. When you have a good friend, a good friend doesn't expect you to be perfect. Abraham was not perfect, but he was consistent. The Bible tells us above all, fervently love one another for love What does it do? It covers, what? A multitude of sins. Do you have a best friend? What makes that friend a best friend? Best buddy. It's that that person's been there for you. It's that that person knows you and loves you and has loved you consistently over the years despite what they know about you. Because if you let someone into your life enough to call a good friend then they know you. (laughs) They know your faults and your weaknesses and still what? Still love you. Now, don't flip it around. There's no faults and weaknesses in God. We know that. But Abraham knew God well enough to where God's testimony of Abraham was, Abraham is my friend. He knows me. 
He follows me. He obeys me. He's got an idea of what I'm up to in the world. This is the stuff of relationship. When I was doing my aunt's service, and I've done this many times um, at memorial services and funerals, I shared Psalm 23. And Psalm 23 opens, the Lord is my shepherd. And I tell people over and over again, and I've said it to you before, you can claim the rest of the promises in that psalm if you can say, the Lord is my shepherd. Shepherd sheep imagery is all over the Bible. And a shepherd does what? He leads and cares for the sheep. And the sheep are supposed to what? Follow him. And we know sheep are prone to wander. In fact, one of the things that a shepherd has is he has a rod. And he uses the rod to part the fleece of the sheep to look for insects and that kind of thing. And they pass under the rod. But sometimes he uses the rod for correction. And if a group of sheep are wandering off, he's so well trained with the rod. And it's almost like a guy who's good with a boomerang. He could throw that rod and it'll hit a rock right next to a sheep's head and turn the whole group of them around to come back to him. My grandmother used to do this with anything that was within the vicinity when I was fighting with my sister. Here's how it usually went. We'd be watching television and I'd be poking at my say, leave me, don't touch me. And my grandmother would take a shoe, sometimes the TV, God, TV guide, and we'd get paper cuts on the side of our head. And then she'd take a shoe and boom, I told you to stop. And the shoe would just magically come back to grandma and she'd go and put it right back in her holster. It was just amazing. Stop it up. She had special Italian grandma powers. Bordered on miraculous. When you know God, he will even sometimes use the rod. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What? Yeah, because if you're getting off track... You have a friend that's getting off track. What does a good friend do for another friend? Do you just let him go? No. No, you reach out in truth and in love, knowing you too could make the same mistake. Abraham was a friend of God. Are you? Are you growing in your relationship with him to where, man, that's the most important thing in your life is to know him that well. Friends help each other. Friends love each other. Friends are not perfect, but they're trustworthy. And so Abraham runs out and he starts scurrying around. Look at Genesis 18. We're only going to do half the chapter. Please, he says, let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Don't pass me by. So they stop. He says, rest yourselves under the tree, the trees of Mamre here. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourself. Genesis 18, verse 5. After that, you may go on, since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried. And look at these uh, descriptions. In, into the tent to Sarah. And he said, quickly. <laughs> Can you imagine this? He's getting a sense of who this is. Hurry up. And he seems to be pretty good at delegation as well, which... He says, quickly prepare three measures. That's Caesar, six gallons of fine flour needed and make bread cakes. Hurry. Abraham also ran, man. He's running everywhere. The dude's 99. 
I want to know what joint supplement he's taking. He also ran to the herd. He took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant. And he hurried to prepare. Hurry, everybody, hurry. He had the whole place stirred. Everybody was on high alert. Hurry up. You ever been there before? I'll go back to another Italian illustration. There's something that happens to Italians when they're cooking. And maybe some of you can relate to this. Maybe it's not just an Italian phenomenon. But when I'm in the kitchen cooking a meal, there's part of me that wants help and part of me that wants everybody to keep at a distance. Because I'm timing things. I'm stirring this and over there. And then when it's all done, I want everybody to come the moment I call them. The food's ready. And I wait about 10 seconds. Didn't you hear me? <laughs> right? And I say, I want to cook. I love to cook. You love to cook? It doesn't sound like you love to cook. <laughs> Abraham's got him stirred up, man. Hurry up with the bread. Now, this is almost like the Martha and Mary thing in Luke 10, right? Mary's all serene, sitting at his feet, listening to his word. Martha's in the kitchen. That sister, I'm lazy. <laughs> Goes and rebukes the Lord. Tell my sister <laughs> to come and help me. Oh, Martha, Martha, Martha. Whew. But it's not just the ladies. Here's Abraham running around all crazy. Why do you think? Well, I think he wants to get back to this group. I think he knows that there's a message coming. I think he's expecting to hear something from God. And so everybody's running around trying to prepare the meal. He took curds, uh, verse 8. That's yo play in Greek or Hebrew. I'm just kidding. That's not. But Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And curds is actually the word for yogurt, though. Curds and milk, verse 8, and the calf, which he had prepared, placed it before them as he was standing by them under the tree. What's your Bible say? As they ate. Oh, wait a minute now. If this is two angels and the Lord, do you mean to tell me that they ate the food? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. That's what the Bible says. And I believe in the new Jerusalem we're going to eat. Praise God. And I'm talking about eating. And I believe since we have new resurrected bodies, it is quite possible that we will no longer have to worry about the bubble. <laughs> Everybody know what I'm talking about? This is, this is hope, okay? I don't have a Bible verse I can turn you to, but, you know, anyway, <laughs> there it is. They ate, and, and Abraham doesn't seem to be joining them. He's kind of just watching, like, checking out what's going on here. Do you know that, uh, studying on this, this is the only place before Jesus becomes human in the New Testament, the only place that I know of in the Old Testament where God eats a meal with an individual. The only place. There's a couple other places where something's prepared, but it becomes like a burnt offering. But this is the only place where he actually physically eats. And if Abraham has a notion that this is the Lord I wonder how closely he's watching. I wonder if he's worried. Like, I hope he likes it. <laughs> Got one shot at this man. Is it good? <laughs> I don't know. Taste it real quick. 
And so the Lord and the angels are eating the food. You know, after Jesus resurrected from the dead in Luke 24, um, he appeared to the guys on the road to Emmaus and he said, have you got anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And the Bible says he ate it in their presence in his resurrection body. Yeah. And the Bible says that his resurrection body is a prototype of what we're going to get will be made like unto him. So that seems to imply that we will get to eat. Oh, I'm so happy about that. The angels are here. Angels are going to be involved in the second coming of Christ, Matthew 13, Matthew 24. Angels help execute God's judgment. They're reapers in the end times. In fact, Luke 16, 22, Jesus said, even angels are involved at a believer's death. The angels carried him away to Abraham's bosom. One dark night about 100 years ago, a Scottish missionary couple found themselves surrounded by cannibals intent on taking their lives. That, that terror-filled night, they fell to their knees and prayed that God would protect them. Intermittent uh, with their prayers, the missionaries heard the cries of the savages. Can you imagine this? Cannibals trying to take your household. And expected them to come through the door at any moment. But as the sun began to rise, to their astonishment, they found that the natives were retreating into the forest. The couple's hearts soared to God it was a day of rejoicing. The missionaries bravely continu continued their work. A year later, the chieftain of the tribe was converted to Christ. As the missionary spoke with him, he remembered the horror of that night, and he asked the chieftain why his men had not killed them. The chief replied, quote, Who were all those men who were with you? The missionary answered, Why, there were no men with us. There was just my wife and myself. The chieftain began to argue with him, saying, there were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house, so we could not attack you, close quote. I have a file full of stories like this from the mission field, where there are people about to attack, and they see these tall men in shining garments, and they're kept away. Incredible. Angels are ministering spirits. They come to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Some of you have what you think may be angel stories. I've got one. I've told it before. I won't get into the details, but an individual that encouraged me, and then I never saw the person again. It was a pretty unique circumstance. I don't know for sure, but they said to him, look at verse 9, Genesis 18, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, behold, in the tent, this would be kind of the normal thing. The men were outside talking. The the wife was in the tent, but certainly the walls of a tent are not terribly thick. And so there she is in the tent. She probably was listening. We find out she was listening. And he said, verse 10, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. So she made the food. She might have been listening in to see what the conversation was. Maybe Abraham gave her an idea of what was going on. Maybe she's just curious. And she hears verse 10, I will surely return to you at this time next year. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. She's like 90. And she's listening at the tent door, which verse 10 was what? It was behind him. Here's the picture. The Lord sitting with Abraham outside the tent and the tent's behind him. And she's listening, maybe by the flap of what would close on the opening. 
Now, Abraham and Sarah, verse 11, were old, advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. She had been not only uh, infertile her whole life, but now she was menopausal. Those are two big strikes against childbearing. Do you not think so? I mean, she, even when she was young, she could not have children. Now she's past the age of childbearing. And what does she hear these strangers talking about after she met the bread cakes? Your wife, going to have a kid. And Sarah, verse 12, what's your Bible say? She laughed to herself. Very important, mark it. She laughed. How many times have you done this? You've laughed to yourself about something like, it's usually with these words, yeah, right. (laughs) You don't say it out loud, you know. There's certain times when we kind of laugh to ourselves. We kind of, you know, We have the internal dialogue going on, but we haven't let it out. She laughed to herself and she said, this is what was going on inside of her. She said, after I've become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also, me and Abraham, man, we're old. That time is past. But this is an internal dialogue that's going on in her mind. We all know that we have different kind of laughs. Some laughter is just lighthearted. Some is scornful. Some is insulting. And one writer says, other is the laughter. Other laughter is the flag of unbelief. You ever had someone laugh at you about your faith? (laughs) What a joke. That's their way of saying they disdain what you believe. They laugh in the face of God. And she laughed. I mean, you could kind of understand why. E.W. Wilcox says, laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. But the Lord wasn't laughing. The Lord does not laugh at our unbelief. For unbelief means that we are saying God cannot be trusted. One writer says, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Close quote. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts God's word and attributes and attributes falsehood to him. And the Lord said to Abraham, I don't know why he addresses Abraham here, but notice this, look at this husband's, why did Sarah laugh? He asked Abraham that. (laughs) How would you respond? I don't think Abraham heard her because she laughed, where? Inside of herself. So I don't think Abraham heard what was going on. And the Lord said, your wife's in there laughing. No response from Abraham. But what she's saying is, shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? Now, Abraham is being addressed by the Lord, but Sarah's listening. So this is for her. And the Lord says, look at verse 14. Is anything too difficult? The Hebrew word could be translated too wonderful or too surpassing or too incredible for the Lord. At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. You see, he's talking to Abraham, but he's talking to Abraham or through Abraham to Sarah, who's listening behind the tent, which isn't much of a wall, and he's asking a question. Do you believe? And the question is not just for Sarah. The question is for you and me. 
This is a scripture you ought to highlight. This is a scripture you ought to make your own because the question is for the reader. Moses is writing Genesis, and when this is recorded via the direction of the Holy Spirit, it's being asked of the reader. It's being asked of the believer, us. That's what we call ourselves. We are what? Believers. Do you identify that way? Believers of what? We believe in the God of the Bible. We're believers. And the question to the believer reading this section is, is anything? What do you think is too difficult for the Lord? Anything? Like the skeptic who says, all right, Christian, if God's so powerful, can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? <laughs> That's about the best they got, right? Answer that one. Have you noticed that there's a lot of so-called atheists mad at a God they say does not exist? That's like being mad at unicorns. Unicorns really make me angry. In fact, I go on unicorn websites. I'm an anti-unicorn person. In fact, I've written 10 books. I'm an A-unicorn believer. What, what in the world's going on with this anger? You don't get angry at things that you don't believe exist. You don't blame them for stuff. You know, I think that unicorn is to blame for my current situation. What's that? I, I can't get a job. My car's not running good. Unicorns. <laughs> what? And the Christian has to ask, what do you think's the source of that anger? Maybe there's something deeper going on. Maybe even the person that's a little bit upset might be closer to the kingdom than the person who just gives you kind of lip service. Oh, I believe there's a, yeah, there's a supreme being out there somewhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is anything too incredible for this one? Numbers 11.23. Is the Lord's power limited? Jeremiah 32.27. Is anything too difficult or wonderful for me? And so Mary is told that <clears throat> she's going to have the Christ child. And Mary, she says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the dialogue ends this way. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. Nothing is incredible for those in covenantal fellowship with the Lord because nothing is too wonderful, too marvelous, too difficult for him. And so here's the final verse for tonight. So the, she's listening. She knows she's caught. And Sarah did, look at verse 15, what a lot of people do when they get caught in unbelief. Sarah, look at verse 15. She denied it. And you all know that denial is just simply a river in Egypt anyway. Thank you. Sarah denied it, however, saying, now look at this godly woman. The one who's held up in 1 Peter 3 is a woman that other Christian women should follow after. What did she do? She denied it and said, she didn't even, I mean, this might have been a good way to go about this. I laughed, but I laughed because, wait a minute, let's see if my excuse can come into this sentence. <laughs> 
You ever been in mid-sentence? You're trying to figure out what your excuse is going to be. Uh, I, I laugh, but, but I, I laugh because, uh, hold on, let me, I'm scanning the Rolodex for an excuse right now. But she actually denied that she laughed, which technically was kind of true because she laughed inside. And she said, I didn't laugh for she was, most of our denials come because we're afraid. And he said, the Lord said, no, <laughs> but you did laugh. You did laugh. You could call this a mild rebu rebuke. And God is going to get the last laugh. He always does. Isaac's name ironically means laughter. And I want you to flip ahead, 21, chapter 21, look at verse 6. 21, 6, and we're done. This is when it happens. She has the child. Go to 5. Now, Abraham, 21, 5, was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, 21, 6, God has made, what? Laughter for me. Literally, Isaac's name means he laughs. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? She said, I didn't laugh. God says, yes, you did laugh. She kind of quieted down. Then she had the child. She's nursing the child. And she said, God has made me laugh. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. How's the song go? I will exalt because he has made me glad. That's what God did. You know, God, he could have said, oh, you laughed? Okay, guess what? No Isaac. That's not God. Aren't you glad that's not God? Aren't you glad for all the times we've doubted and maybe even laughed inside at something that God didn't say, okay, out of the kingdom, zap, boom, gone. Don't trust me? Okay. But he doesn't operate that way. He brings the promise to pass. Would you bow your heart with me? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can ask or imagine, what we can ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you so much that you are able to do miracles in our lives. You've already done them. The new birth is a miracle. Being born again of the Holy Spirit is a miracle. And it brings joy and laughter to our lives, the best kind of joy. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us glad that we can say even that we are a friend of God, we know you and you know us. And it's so good to be in the kingdom, to be adopted children of the Most High God. If you're here tonight and maybe you've been far away from the Lord, maybe you want to get back to that close, intimate relationship with him. Maybe you're not a Christian tonight. Just cry out to him right now. Something like this, Jesus, save me. Pray it right now if it's you. Jesus, I commit my life to you. I believe you died on the cross to save me. Thank you, Lord. I believe you rose from the dead to defeat death and justify me. I believe, Lord. I turn from my unbelief. Maybe you're a Christian and you've been backslidden. I turn from my lack of faith, Lord. 
Cleanse me of that. Make me a person who trusts you more. Continue to stretch my faith and mold me into the person that you want me to be, more like Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy when we fall short. Thank you that this couple has given us encouragement that you don't have to be perfect to be counted among those who are uh, great in faith. And we just pray that you'll bless and strengthen the faith of each person here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand?